this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Awesome. If you guys have your Bibles tonight, go ahead and turn to Galatians. The book of Galatians. As we look at a text tonight, it's actually going to be a study that I taught last week. And uh, the sound was not there, so we didn't get to broadcast that. So I, I do want you guys to hear this study. I'm titling it The Crucified Life. And it's taken from Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. This text has been a staple for me, knowing that Christ, because he was crucified, we no longer have to live in the flesh. It was his sacrifice. Recently, I was listening to this interview with this Navy SEAL, Marcus Luttrell, and he gave this account which actually turned into the movie Lone Survivor. And it's a true account of a, the four-man Navy SEAL team that got ambushed. And they were forced to jump off a cliff in Afghanistan in order to evade the enemy. And his team was shot and killed, and he, as the lone survivor, crawled through the wilderness for his survival. And in this interview, he explained how he was so dehydrated that the mud and the blood that was in his mouth couldn't even be washed out by this creek that he had found. The water was doing nothing for it. And then he heard as he was there and he discovered this creek and he's trying to survive, he suddenly heard some locals approaching him, yelling at him, Taliban, Taliban. And so he fell down this creek as to try to avoid them. And then he saw this man coming towards him and he was ready to engage him. He grabbed his rifle and suddenly he heard the words, American, American, shampoo, hydrate, hydrate, shampoo. And suddenly Marcus realized, oh man, this guy, that, that sounds really nice right about now. I'm dehydrated, I'm dirty, I'm wounded. Water and a bath sounds great. And so what had happened was that this man and a few of his villagers, Muhammad Gulab, he took Marcus Luttrell for safety. He hid him. And the Afghan villager, he put his life on the line to rescue Marcus from the Taliban. Muhammad then was then marked by the Taliban of the terrorist group. And later he would even get shot and wounded all for the survival of this Navy SEAL. And eventually Marcus Luttrell, once he came back to the States, he, he got Muhammad to come back to America or to come to America. He got him out of that situation. Now, 
something that stands out to me in this man, Muhammad, is how he put aside his own safety, even the safety of his family, to look after this foreigner. He asked him, hydrate, shampoo, are you taken care of? He put his own life on the line so that another man can live. And in that moment, he, he was dying to himself. Now, there's an attribute that I see in this that I do see it as uh, something that God desires that we be like. And it's that death to self. You see, there is an attribute of Christ that is selfless. And this is known as the crucified life. Again, in Galatians 2.20, it says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now I want to ask us, what does it mean to be crucified with Christ? Perhaps we've heard this phrase before or this, this verse, but we haven't quite dove into the depth of what this means. Well, I have several points for us tonight on what it means literally and symbolically, to be crucified with Christ. If you're taking note, number one, the crucified life, it requires death. The crucified life requires death. We learned about the passion this past few weeks as we remembered Good Friday, and then we celebrated the resurrection, and we went in detail on the gruesome crucifixion. How Jesus was nailed to the cross. The suffering he endured. His physical body, which he allowed to take place on him. As he was there on the cross crying out, I thirst. He physically suffered. And finally, Jesus gave up his spirit to his father in heaven. Now he made that decision, Jesus did, and he could have saved himself, but being 100% innocent and sinless, he stayed on that cross, taking on the judgment, the punishment of our own sins, the sins of the entire human race. And this he did because of love. We know the famous verse, John 3:16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It's because of love. Again, in Romans chapter five, verse eight, it says, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, Christ loved us and desired that we would be saved from death, from hell, from sin. The requirement for heaven, it's perfection. And none of us are perfect. We all know that. But when we accept Jesus as our Lord and our Savior, he removes the sin from our lives 
from our account and we are made complete with access into heaven and in the presence of Jesus. You see, there had to be a judgment for sin. And Jesus was that self-sacrifice, that sacrificial lamb. We're going to be staying on Galatians 2.20 as I break apart this verse. So stay there in in your Bible, but continue to to follow along as I'm going to be reading some verses. Um, Just listen as I read some of these verses. See, when we accept Jesus as our, our Lord and Savior, we put God and Jesus on their rightful throne in our own lives. Not that God needs to be put, God's already on the throne. But for us, in every man and woman's heart, there's a throne, a little human throne. And we like to put ourselves on that throne. We like to put pursuits and other goals and money, finances, success. And that's king to us. But we need to make sure that Christ is on the cross. I'm sorry, on the the throne. And it's not just because, oh, if Jesus is on the throne, you get good things coming your way. That's not the gospel. Jesus needs to be on the throne because he deserves it. Because he is worthy of it. No one is worthy to be on the throne except him. Sometimes I think we, and even myself, as I teach, I I, I can focus on so many of the great blessings and which we should focus on that we gain as a believer, which is true. But then we just want sometimes all the blessings and none of the sacrifice in our own life. We want Jesus to be our our Savior, but we don't want him to be our Lord. We want him to save us, but we don't want him to tell us what to do or to honor him. You see, This is what being crucified with Christ means. In Romans chapter 6, I'm going to read to you from the New Living Translation. It says, We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin. For when we died with Christ... We were set free from the power of sin. And since we died with Christ, we know we will also live with him. We are sure of this because Christ was raised from the dead and he will never die again. Death no longer has any power over him. When he died, he died once to break the power of sin. But now that he lives, he lives 
for the glory of God. So you also should consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus. You see, our old sinful nature, the flesh, our past life, that needs to be murdered. We need to reckon it to be dead, the Bible teaches us. Consider it dead. We need to live out that new creation and stop acting like the old way. Because you see, many of us are children of God. There are people out there in the world who aren't. Not that God doesn't desire them to be, but they choose not to be. But those who are God's children, sometimes they begin to believe that they're just the old evil sinful nature and that they're not a new creation. When in reality, they are a new creation, but they start to act like their old ways again. So they need to stop acting like that. We need to stop acting like the old sinful nature. The flesh has to be put to death. You see, if we believe this to be true, that we are a new creation, we have to believe that it is true in other people's lives as well. I'm reminded of the prodigal son. Remember when Jesus gave that parable? He was telling the disciples and the Pharisees about the young man who went to his father one day and told him, Dad, um, I'm not happy here. So why don't you just give me my inheritance that I'm going to get when you die? Why don't you just give that to me now? So I can go. Things aren't working out here for me. And the dad said, you know what you want out of this family? Here's your money. Go. And that prodigal son then went and lived it up in that Vegas lifestyle of debauchery and immorality. And he spent all his money, wasted it, on sinful living, and he found himself then in poverty, begging for money, begging for food, working with pigs to make a living, to try to get some food. And as he was there looking at the pigs' food that he was shoveling over to them, he began to hunger even for it. And he realized, man, in my father's house, the servants of his house eat better than this, eat better than what I'm eating. And he's like, you know what? He comes to his senses. He comes to himself and says, I'm going to go back to my dad and I'm just going to beg and ask that he would just allow me to be his servant. That he would allow me to enter back into the home as a slave. And so he goes back. He goes back home. And as he's approaching the house, who's out there waiting for him? The father. 
looking for the day, for the moment when his son was going to come back. And as he sees his son approaching, suddenly they have this moment where they see each other and they run and embrace each other. And his father, he loves him. He says, come back home. Welcome, my son. You were lost. I want to have a, a celebration for you. And he ends up throwing this party for his son who's returned. And then as they're throwing the party, celebrating that their son, his prodigal son has come back home, suddenly some of the, one of his brothers is like, hey dad, like, what's up? Like, your, your son goes and takes your money and loses it all? And you throw him this party? When in the meantime, I've been here serving all these years? And where's my party? Where's my food? Where's the, the celebration for, for me who's been serving you faithfully all these years? And the dad tells the son who's upset, the brother who's upset, he says, son, everything I have is yours. Your brother was lost, but now he's found. And because of that, we celebrate. And as Jesus gave that parable, the Pharisees knew that in this parable, Jesus was saying that the Pharisees are like the brother who are upset when some of the immoral people like the prostitutes or those who were in all other scenarios, they were upset when they were coming to Jesus. And the Pharisees realized, man, like Jesus is talking about us. And they became upset as they should because that's sin in their life. But rather than being convicted and changing, they were condemned. And so in return, they try to condemn Jesus. You see, we can be a new creation and so can other people. So may we not be quick in our judgment. May we realize and believe it to be true that God can change a person. We also, and we need to exemplify this in our lives. Again, let me read you Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. My second point for tonight is that the flesh must be put to death. We need to murder our flesh. That was one of the slogans for the whosoevers. Um, they used to have these conferences that, that was like their, their theme, murder your flesh. A seriousness of getting rid of, of sin in your life. 
Remember what Jesus said? He said, if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. And if your hand, your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. For it is better to enter into the kingdom of heaven without a hand or an eye than it is to enter into hellfire. Now, Jesus, when he said this, of course, in context, he's not being literal. When Jesus is showing them the severity, the seriousness of putting to death sin in the flesh, of murdering it, putting it far from you. The word flesh in the Latin, in the Greek, I'm sorry, the Greek is sarx. And it means the body, the skin, what can be stripped off. The animal nature with cravings which incite to sin, subject to suffering, human nature prone to sin. Now, the Bible teaches us in Galatians chapter 5, verse 19 through 21, what some of the works of the flesh are. In Galatians 5, verse 19, it says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. See, these are the things that we need to put to death, all this list. Sexuality, the the selfishness, drug abuse. That word sorcery, by the way, when you look up in the Greek, it's pharmakia. It literally means drug use. So nowadays, you have people who are arguing that marijuana is okay with God. It's legal now. It's sorcery. It's altering your state of mind so you're not sober. The Bible teaches us to be soberly minded. Now, I do want to say this real quick. There is the proper use of drugs for when it's a hospital or for medical use. And even with that, sometimes it does mess with the mind. So God has grace on those people. But there's the type of drug use that is for recreation, that is for altering the state of mind set apart from the Lord. Mm. This is what Galatians is talking about, works of the flesh. Works of the flesh, including the arguments, the dissensions, the selfish ambitions, heresies, 
See, that's all arguing, outbursts of wrath, jealousy. You know, it's anger is a real thing. And some people can allow it to, to drive them to hate. We need to ask that God would help us to put that to death. You see, God has put it in our hearts, that conviction. So instead of asking, oh, what, what can I get away with? You know, where's the line for me? Ask yourself, does this action bring glory to God? That's what we need to make sure that we're putting to death those things that don't bring glory to God. Again, in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, meaning just the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, how does Christ live in us? I remember when I was a young child, probably one of my earliest memories I remember when my mom pulled me and my sister into her room to ask us if we wanted to receive Jesus as our Lord and Savior and she began to explain to us how Jesus can live in our hearts that we would ask Jesus to come into our heart and as a little kid, when she said, We're gonna, would you like to ask Jesus to come into your heart? I mockingly went, come into my heart? How, how's Jesus going to come into my heart? And she saw my mocking attitude and said, no, listen, this is serious. <laughs> and so I, I did take her seriously after the, she scolded me lightly. And she explained how Jesus loved us, that he died on the cross for our sins. And as a little child, I, I do remember making that prayer. I think it was later on when I really understood what was happening. But I realize that Christ lives in us by the Holy Spirit. Which brings me to my third point. We need the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We need it. In Romans chapter 8, verse 10 through 11, it says, And Christ lives within you, so even though your body will die because of sin, the Spirit gives you life, because you have been made right with God. The Spirit of God, who raised Jesus from the dead, lives in you. And just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, he will give life to your mortal bodies by the same Spirit living within you. You see, it's by the Spirit. That's how Jesus lives in us and through us. It's not by our works. It's by the Holy Spirit. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, it says, We now have this light shining in our hearts but we ourselves 
are like fragile clay jars containing this great treasure. This makes it clear that our great power is from God, not from ourselves. And if it's from God, who are we to boast? We can't. You see, we're nothing in comparison to Jesus. In Colossians, Colossians 1.27, it says, To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. See, for the non-believer, Christ living in us is meant to draw and to attract the non-believer. They're supposed to be curious, questioning, what is this hope that you have? What is this confidence, this faith? How is it that you're able to still worship God through the trial that you're in? Sometimes I am reminded of Job as he was going through one of the worst trials in his life, the worst trial in his life, so much so they put it in the Bible. Satan desired to do a test on Job, test his heart, and to use him as an example that if this man Job was to lose his success in life, his loved ones, that he would curse God. And so Satan appears to the Lord, God in heaven, and God says, where, where have you been, Satan? He says, oh, I've been going to and fro about the earth. And God says, have you considered my servant Job? And Satan says, yeah, you know, I see he worships you, but you know what, you've, you know, got him pretty nice and living a, a cushioned life and things are pretty good for him. So what? You let me touch him and I'll show you how wicked he can turn. He'll curse you to your face. And God said, no. You want to test it? Go for it. But don't touch him. So Satan says, all right, cool shows up on earth, sends a, a storm to destroy his livestock, his house, sends a fire, some raiders to steal from him, a tornado to kill his family, to drop down the house on his sons. Job loses. In such a, an instant, everything that he desired all his loved ones, his, his success in life was taken away in a moment. And it, that wasn't the end of it. Then Satan goes, he doesn't curse God. And then Satan goes back to God 
and says, all right, God, you've, uh, you know, let me uh, take away his family, but you haven't let me touch him. Let me attack his body. And then I, I know he'll, he'll curse you to your face. So God said, all right, try it out. So Satan goes back down. And this time he attacks Job's body with boils from head to toe covered with that, this terrible boil all over, so much so that he has to cut these blisters open with a, with a shard to let them drain out the pus. And then it was, he's at his lowest of moments. His wife even tells him, Job, why don't, why don't you just curse God and die? It'll be better for you if you just do that. And Job says, how am I going to praise God for all the good he's given me and not praise him for the trial that I'm in? In, through the trial that I'm in. And then at the end of that account, Job begins to even not curse God, but question what exactly is happening. Job's three friends come to him. And they said, oh, Job, you know what? Why don't you just repent of whatever hidden sin you got? Because surely you're in some sort of deep and dark sin that we don't know about why else would these things happen to you and job says no i've been righteous i don't understand what's going on i don't have any dark hidden sin and they start to attack him because in their society their belief was that if you do good you're going to be blessed and that if you do evil you would be cursed but in Job's case, he was doing good and he was being plagued. You see, God shines on the wicked as well as the good. And so as Job is now contemplating all these things in his heart, his mind, and starting to, to even doubt, suddenly God appears, comes to Job out of the whirlwind and speaks to him. And he tells Job, he says, Job, what do you think you're doing? All these thoughts you're thinking. Job, do you know how the earth was formed? Were you there when I put the core of it together and all, all the, the dirt and the, the water and the land masses? Were you there when that, the foundations of the earth, earth were formed? What about the stars? Do you know all of the stars by name? Job, all the galaxies, the way, do you know how to hang up the planets so that they operate in orbit without crashing into each other, into the earth? Do you know how to allow these giant sea monsters to be created? And how wild and vast they are, do you know how to make something like that, Job? I do. God begins to explain to Job that he is sovereign over all the little details of this entire life. That God is sovereign over every instance, even his Job's own mind, God was sovereign over it. 
And he doesn't answer Job of why it happened. The account leaves off with Job realizing that we have to trust in God. That putting all your faith in him, knowing that you would see your redeemer, Jesus, Job even cries that out. I know my redeemer lives. Referring to the Messiah. Basically, Job was at peace with the things that he did not understand. He was allowing God to give him peace with what he did understand. This is the plight of our life. There's going to be things that we have to write down as Questions to ask when we get to heaven. And until then, we have to fall back on what we do know. That God is good. That he loves us. That he has a plan for our lives. Thoughts of good. That we're called. You see, this is the hope that we need to give to other people. And it's only possible through the Holy Spirit. We need to have that baptism. We need to be newborn. Jesus told Nicodemus, unless you are born again, you cannot enter into the kingdom of God. He says there needs to be a new birth, baptism, this spirit life. Yet we still live in this flesh and we strive and struggle in it. And Romans chapter seven talks a little bit about how Paul struggled in his flesh. And I'm thankful that he wrote about it and that he didn't think himself all high and mighty as to not share with his, his own struggles. But Paul wrote this in Romans chapter seven, verses 15 through 20. In the New Living Translation, he said, I don't really understand myself, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. But if I know that what I am doing is wrong, this shows that I agree that the law is good. So I am not the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. And I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. But if I do what I don't want to do, I'm not really the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. See, Paul understood that there was a battle, the flesh and the spirit, warring with each other. And it reminds me again that we cannot practice sin. We need to put that away. But we have these moments where we have, like in the movies, the the little angel pop up on our shoulder and then the little devil on this side. 
And the devil's like, steal that candy. And then the angel's like, don't do it. And we need to allow the Holy Spirit to lead us. Perhaps you've heard this parable of the indigenous man who had a struggle and said there are two lions living within me, these big cats. And they're at war with each other. And one asked, well, which one's winning? He said, the one that I feed. And that's referring to, again, the spirit and the flesh. Whatever we feed more, it's going to overpower the other one. When we feed our spirit, reading the Bible, praying, worshiping, going to church, we strengthen ourselves within Christ. See, if you find yourself struggling in an area of maybe you're just not feeling worship music for a while and you need to be, start reading and praying and then putting on that worship music. But the reading and the praying will allow that spirit to then make your desire be for worship music. If you haven't been reading lately, put on the worship music and and start praying and ask God to give you the desire to have a consistent devotional life. You see, all three of those practices, they, they kind of, they vibe off of each other. And the more you feed one, then the other one grows. And we need to be balanced in all of this. And the flesh, when you allow that little bit of flesh to stay alive, it, it grows. Jesus said a little leaven leavens the lump. And sin leads to other sins. And then when you feed into that, suddenly it's compromise. It's backsliding. And this is something we need to realize. What are those areas in our life that the enemy is trying to use to pull us away from God? Do we see them coming? What are those struggles? What are those things that you believe are gray areas in life? That are, you believe that you have your Christian liberty to do? That in reality, they lead to worse and terrible sins. That's just a stepping stone. You drift. Sometimes the tide, in the, when you're out there on the ocean, it allows you to drift and you don't even realize you're, you're drifting down the shoreline because your surroundings, they look, it's just water. It looks all the same. But then when you look back to the shore, you realize, oh man, I, I'm far from where I came out at. That's what sin is like. Compromise, little step, little step, little step. And Satan, he's subtle. He doesn't sometimes throw the most terrible thing your way to seduce you or to, 
to tempt you. He starts off by little inches. So we need to ask God for discernment to stay away from that, to stay away from those pitfalls. Paul said that to live is Christ and to die is gain. You see, our flesh, though we have the sin nature, we are still to use our bodies for God and allow God to do what he desires with it. Allow Christ to live in you, through you. Again, Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Who loved me and gave himself for me. What does it mean to live by faith? My fourth point for tonight is our faith must be childlike. You see, Jesus said that unless you enter like a child, you will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Unless you come to me the way that a child trusts his mom, his dad. Sometimes when... We're watching the nieces and nephews. You, you see them turn into little suiciders. And they're rolling off the, the couch and you have to go save them before they, they fall and hit themselves. In that same way, they trust their parents that they're going to catch them. We need to trust our father that he's got us. Sometimes we act like the children too jumping off things we shouldn't. But understand it and have that faith that God does have a plan for everything that's going on. That all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. This is the same faith as the Old Testament. You see, the faith that Moses and the Israelites had when they were putting the blood on the doorpost, they had a faith that the destroyer would pass over them, that they would not have their firstborn killed, but that God was going to be true to his word. They had faith when they walked into over the Jordan to enter into the promised land. Abraham had faith. He had faith after God told him he was going to have a son. His faith grew. You see, faith, however, when it grows, it needs to be tested. Because without that testing, there's not a testimony. We need to have that simple belief. That's what the word faith means. It's that belief and acknowledgement that something is true. So a big question is, do you believe that this Bible is true? Do you believe that th this is God's authoritative 
perfect word. Now, don't get me wrong. Yes, this is a translation, okay? It is a translation. But when you look at the original, the original writings in their original language, when you compare them to this Bible I have here in my hands, the New King James Version, it's the same meaning, the same context. It's still authoritative. When I began to say that this is not authoritative, when I begin to say and think that there are errors in this, that's when I get off track. That's when I start to allow sin into my life. Because if, if there's errors about this on sins in my life, then I get the liberty to sin. And that leads to all kinds of craziness. Separation from God. So we need to take God at his word. We need to know and understand it. We need to have that faith in Jesus. Jesus was the word in living flesh. It says, who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, Jesus, my last point, Jesus was our promised savior. Promised from the beginning. You see, this book, it's, it's a love letter. The plot is that God loved the world. He created it, everything in it. Our origin story. But then there was a problem, not from God, but from humankind. We were selfish. We desired to disobey God. And when that happened, though God intended us to live forever, sin entered the world. Because of sin, death. However, God already knew that was going to happen. So he had the plan that instead of us having to die, that his own son, who is God, Jesus, would become a sacrifice propitiation for our sins, for our flaws, and that he would rise again and redeem us back to God. I'm going to end with a illustration by an anonymous author about redemption. With this idea that that Jesus desires that you be in a relationship with him fully and completely, that you die to yourself and live to him 
There's this story of a sailor. The story is called The King Sailor. It says this. There was a king who built a ship meant to sail the world, to carry goods to and from his kingdom. His kingdom mean God's kingdom. The ship was beautiful in every way. Its massive sails bore the mark of God's realm. By day, its chiseled carpentry displayed the magnificence of the king's nature and of angels. By night, the flames from its lanterns could be seen cutting through the dark. The king sent and set a sailor over the ship to command it. But the sailor was a fool and kept no care of his keep. Venturing off his course, he traded with enemies of his king, exchanged goods for harlotry, and became a debtor to an evil prince. The sailor gambled away the king's ship and his service to the prince. All seemed lost. But the king came to the prince of the air and sold all the gold he had to buy back the, the sailor and his ship. The sailor and the king's ship returned to its rightful kingdom, and the sailor pledged his life and service to his king. With love in the king's eyes, the king looked at his sailor and said, I built this ship and gave it to you. Now I've bought this ship and your freedom, and I give it to you again. Serve me well. You see, we have been given a life, and many of us have used it for things that God did not attend. And God sent his only son to buy back our lives. And he gives it to us again. So may we serve him well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love, your grace, your mercy. Lord, may you be glorified in our lives. Lord God, may we surrender everything to you. Father, we thank you for sending your son, Jesus, to die on the cross for our sins. Give us faith. May the works of the flesh be put to death. Give us discernment, the power of your Holy Spirit to lead and guide. We love you. We praise you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. One more song, and we'll see you guys on Sunday morning. 11.30 in the backyard.